following audio is from a sermon series entitled Idols of the Heart. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 14, 25-33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. I just now realized while we were reading that, that that's probably the longest text we've had all year. So sorry, Katie. Um, I guess that's kind of the issue you run into when you preach like two verses at a time through Colossians. Uh, But my name is Bryson. I'm one of the pastoral residents here. uh, And it's my joy and pleasure to be here with you this morning, getting to preach. Uh, And and I'm reminded of what Dr. Alex said last week. Uh, We get get a great gift of grace uh, getting to assemble together, getting to meet together and worship. Uh, a lot of places around even our own country don't get that privilege right now. Uh, and then we also get another gift of grace on top of that with things like air conditioning, uh, no gnats. That's one of my favorite things since being inside is, is being gnat-free. Uh, we do still have the occasional chipmunk to watch out for. So uh, if you do see it, just remain calm. I do want to Ben forgot to mention this in the announcements, but just go ahead and watch your ankles. Uh, If you set off the trap, I want to ask that you please remain seated until the usher comes to you, uh, dismisses your row, and then go out the side door right here. And uh, make sure not to dress any wounds or bites in the lobby, uh, but do that outside, doing your part to social distance. Um, Now, if you aren't aware, we're in a series that's called Idols of the Heart. Uh, We've had two... Uh, Really good sermons the last couple weeks, Uh, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to those, but I do kind of have an issue with Dr. Alex's sermon last week. He admitted that he has not preached this year, so he's had six months to come up with some really good quality stuff on Pastor Justin, and that's what we got last week. It was a little underwhelming, and so I, I, I felt obligated to take some time to take some shots at both of them. Uh, but then I did the math, and that's like 30 people between the Arguellos and the Deans. And I don't have that kind of manpower. We're working on number five, so we've got a way to go. Uh, but we've got a bit to cover this morning, so let me pray for us, and we'll hop into it. God, we want to thank you for your love. We want to thank you for your grace. We want to thank you for... Just the so many different evidences of grace and 
uh, evidences of your fingerprints that are on our lives. Uh, so many times we can look over them. So many times we can neglect and get uh, tossed and turned by the way that the world is right now. And, and it can cause weariness and it can cause uneasiness. And so this morning, what I want to ask for your Holy Spirit to do is to provide some relief. I want to ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word, help us see you more clearly, help us understand the heart of Jesus better. And as we do that, I believe that the uneasiness and the weariness that comes with a life in this world will begin to ease and will begin to feel relief. So would you do that this morning for your glory and our joy? And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so like I mentioned, we're in the second half of our series called Idols of the Heart. Uh, and this series, I think, kind of works as a good one-two punch with our last series that we were in in the book of Colossians, uh, Jesus Over Everything. Uh, if you missed that series, again, I would encourage you to go back, give that a listen. It'll probably be 2021 by the time you're done. But uh, I found that the series was really good for my soul, was really good for my family, uh, and, and I really enjoyed it, even if it took six months to get through and a pandemic. But in this series, uh, we're kind of looking at something different. So last series, this big idea was, was Jesus over everything. And, and the realization of that in the disciples' life was kind of the aim we were shooting for. We want you to, to better see that Jesus is over everything. And that's kind of even uh, a, a main point in our process of sanctification is this growing recognition that Jesus is over everything. But I think if we're honest... Uh, a lot of times, if we really examine ourselves, we can find ourselves operating more out of our current series than our previous series. We, we find ourselves operating more out of the idols of our heart than the recognition of Jesus over everything. Now, whether that be consciously or unconsciously, uh, we, we probably find out that it's more difficult uh, when you listen to the sermons of our last series it sounds nice, but it's not always that easy. And so what we're doing now is trying to help our, myself, you guys, anyone who has the opportunity to listen to these sermons, we want to help you recognize that there are areas in our lives that Jesus is not recognized over everything. And so that's what we're doing is, is looking at these four specific idols and seeing, well, how are we saying that power is actually over everything? How are we saying in our lives that control is over everything? Or like this morning, how are we saying that things like comfort is over everything? Now, Dr. Alex hit on this a little bit last week by referencing back to the first commandment. I believe he called it the most grievous of sins. And reformer Martin Luther elaborates on that a little bit as well. Luther points out, that any breaking of the bottom eight commandments, those being things like lying, stealing, dishonoring your parents, covetousness, it's all kind of a direct act of idolatry. So it's kind of like saying, if I lie, 
then that means that there's something in my life that has been elevated to the place of Jesus that seems like it's worth lying for. Or if I steal, it's because there's something in my life that has been elevated and cherished before God. So essentially what Luther is saying is that every sin, kind of at its roots, is an act of idolatry. And so this morning, I feel confident uh, in, in saying, if you're a Christian, then I very much doubt you'll raise your hand and say that you are not sinning currently, or you did not sin this past week. Or maybe you're not a Christian, and I think we can kind of find some common ground there in saying that in this world, something feels off. Something feels off with me, something feels off with my work, something feels off with my family, something feels off with my relationships or hobbies, and, and we want to point to the Bible, and the Bible kind of gives us some reasoning behind that, and it says that the reason that things feel off is because we live in a world that, that prefers idol worship. One could argue that the main plea of the Bible is to turn from idol worship to the one true living God who is seeking to restore and renew all things to himself. Now, nearly everything has the opportunity to become an idol in our lives. But what we want to do in this series is, is really focus on a specific set or a specific group of idols. And so there are really two main ones. We have, or, or, or two main ways we could define idols. We have uh, surface idols, and then we have source idols. Surface idols are kind of uh, the more easily spotted idols. These are ones that maybe come up in missional community more than source idols. Things like materialism, image, work, ideologies. These are things that are, are considered surface idols. And these idols are kind of impossible to number because nearly everything can become a surface idol. And we call them surface idols because they kind of float around on the surface of our hearts, on the surface of our lives, and they're much more easy to detect. But then we have source idols, and they are much more difficult to spot. These idols are the ones we're focusing on in this series. Now, they're called source idols because they're so deeply rooted within us. They're, they're deeply embedded into our hearts, and that's what makes them so tricky to, to fight against, so tricky to uh, see, so tricky to discover. And not only that, but each, surface, or each uh, source idol works together and they intertwine with each other to help build each other up. So just because you've had the idol of power exposed and confronted, it doesn't mean that you don't struggle with control. Or just because you've had control exposed, it doesn't mean that you don't struggle with comfort or approval next week. Each of these are at work trying to build themselves and to build each other up in our lives. Now, out of these four, we'll definitely have 
primary ones. We'll definitely have ones that are standing out a little bit more than other ones. Uh, but, but as you kind of examine your heart, you'll see that there's kind of one or two that are really standing out from the other ones. And they all work in some way, shape, or form in our life. And so the goal this morning, just to be right up front, is we want to have the Holy Spirit illuminate His Word, obviously. And through that, we want to have this idol of comfort exposed but we, want, we don't want to just confront it. We just don't want to acknowledge it. We want to have the Holy Spirit begin the process of destroying that idol. And we want to see, as, as this idol of comfort is destroyed, we want to see what Jesus offers us in return. So I think the question we need to first address is what is comfort? Now, when I first started thinking about the idol of comfort, I kind of thought of it as synonymous with the word greed or an accumulation of wealth or the pursuit of, of a big, big bank account. But while that's an avenue, I think that uh, comfort expresses itself. I don't think that that's the only way that the idol of comfort expresses itself. So to gain a good grasp on the ways that comfort works in our lives, we need a good grasp on verse 25 of our text. So we'll have it on the screen, and we're going to read just verse 25. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, and we'll stop right there. Now before we get into what Jesus said to them, let's, let's kind of look at this crowd for a second. At first glance, uh, it seems like a really good thing that there's this crowd following Jesus. Jesus has a ton of people that are following him, and this, most of the time, we would say, is a really good thing. But Jesus turns to them, and he drops a bomb on them. This is, this is a message that, that uh, church growth strategists would cringe up at. This, this message from Jesus right here, it's not going to be on a blog that says five ways to grow your church. And to really understand why Jesus said this kind of uncomfortable message, we need to understand uh, verse 25 a little bit better, I think. We need to understand this crowd. We need to consider uh, the motivations of the people in the crowd. Why were they following Jesus in the first place? So let's gain some context. Many commentators believe that, that Jesus, uh, during this time, is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem for Passover, which also means that Jesus is on his way to be crucified. Now, up to this point, Jesus had kind of gained some, some significant popularity. He had some, some dope preaching. He had some really cool demonstrations of power, performed a lot of miracles, and this had kind of gained a crowd for Jesus. These people had seen Jesus feed thousands, heal many others, and a lot of people heard his message of the kingdom as this type of uh, political statement. They knew Passover was coming up, and so they were pumped for a holiday feast. They were, they were gearing up for a Thanksgiving dinner, and if that meant that following Jesus was the way they had to get that dinner, well, they were willing to do it. They were willing to follow Jesus if it meant 
their life was a little more comfortable. They had no real commitment to Jesus. They just desired the physically prosperous comforts of life that they thought Jesus offered. Their commitment was to comfort. It was not to Christ. They had a commitment to to feeding themselves and their loved ones, a commitment to healing themselves and their loved ones, a commitment to the life and prosperity of their life and their loved one's life. And this, in a lot of ways, is what comfort is. The idol of comfort kind of works like this. It's an elevation of ourselves. It's a, it's a building up of our kingdom and our preferences by chasing after and storing up the things that we think are going to be kind of good for our kingdom, good for our city, we could call it. And then Jesus, to them, was not over everything. Comfort was. Jesus knows this. He drops the hammer on them, and he confronts their pursuit of comfort head on. So what does Jesus say to those in the crowd? And then, and then by way of extension, what is Jesus saying to those of us who have a, a tendency or a bend towards the worship of the idol of comfort? Let's go back and we'll read the rest of our text this morning. Starting in verse 26. It says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first come, sit down, and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, let's press pause for a second. He says, before we go any further, I want you to consider this. There's no fine print, so don't act surprised later on. If you want to be my disciple, here's a few things to just kind of take note of. You're going to have to hate everyone you know, including your family, in comparison to your love for me. As a matter of fact, everything you have, everything you're about, it's got to be renounced. As a matter of fact, all your stuff has got to be counted as garbage, and your life has got to be ready to be lost for my sake. Otherwise, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Now, this message itself is super uncomfortable. That's not the message we really want to hear. Uh, this isn't the kind of nice and neat Jesus that fits into our pretty little religious box. This Jesus actually doesn't sound very pleasant at all. He actually sounds kind of harsh. It's much easier and much more comfortable 
to be interested in a Jesus that just wants to tweak a few things. A, a Jesus that wants to perform a few updates and a few upgrades to our lives, but really doesn't ask us to let go of anything. It's easy for us to want a little tune-up from Jesus while we continue kind of living the mission of the old self, pursuing our best life now or our most comfortable life now. But that's not the desire of Jesus. He wants a complete overhaul of our lives. And that calls, as we see in these verses, a forfeiting of earthly comfort, or at least the pursuit of it. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I, want to I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones which you think are wicked, the entire outfit. Christ wants to reorganize the priorities of our hearts, the innocent things as well as the wicked things. And that's why I think it's worth noting that comfort in and of itself is not a wicked thing. But when it's elevated, put in the place of Jesus, this good thing, like we've heard before in this series, becomes a God thing. And that's the problem with comfort. It becomes our God thing, and we look to it to find meaning, to find fulfillment, and to find joy. Now, we were created with an appetite for comfort. We're intended to have comfort. But this appetite for comfort is meant to lead us into the arms of Jesus. But what does this comfort usually lead us toward? A 401k? Plenty of investments that promise a relaxing retirement? Is it over-dependency in a relationship? What about choosing the comfort of privacy over community? Or what about health? Is your appetite for comfort leading you to masks and hand sanitizer and six feet of social distancing? Are, are you making sure all the, the boxes are checked because you want to stay nice and comfortable? Is it avoiding necessary confrontation to make sure that you're conflict-free in your life? Or, or maybe, maybe you're like me and your, your appetite for comfort tends to lead you towards a preference of acquaintances rather than relationships. If we really think about it, at the base level of idolatry and the idolatry of comfort specifically, our hearts are really saying that God in and of himself is not good or pleasurable, that there's no real joy to be found in him. God is not good, so I need a big bank account. There's no pleasure or joy in God, so I've got to find that pleasure. I've got to find that joy in my spouse or in my kids. 
God's idea of community isn't for my good. So I've got to find privacy. I've got to find joy and separation from commitment to people, commitment to a community. And that's what we do. We look to other things. We look to other people to find satisfaction and to find joy and to find pleasure for our souls. Our tendency, if we're honest, is to be like many of those in this crowd following Jesus. We want the ticket out of hell. We want the materially abundant life. We want full bellies, bills paid, obedient kids, a nice cushion in the bank account, and a COVID-free life. And then that's when we have joy. But we struggle with a desire for Jesus himself. That's how we can be in community, but resist actually being known by those in the community because of how exposing it is, because of how uncomfortable it is. That's how we can reap the rewards of a paycheck with benefits, but never be on mission at our workplace because of how uncomfortable it is. That's how we can have, have, a, have a bookshelf full of Bibles, but they sit there and they collect dust, and we, we would rather turn towards Netflix and binge six episodes of Tiger King than have the Word of God expose the idolatrous things that we worship in our life because of how uncomfortable it is. There's this interesting parable that Jesus tells just a few chapters before uh, chapter 14. And I want to look at that together. You can go ahead and turn there. It'll be Luke 12, and we'll be in verses 16 through 21. Uh, We've also got it on the screen for you. I'll give you just a second. Starting in verse 16, it says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God, or the one who lays up comforts for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, up until verse 19, uh, it's kind of hard to pinpoint what went wrong here. This guy has a great year, so much prosperity, he makes a decently wise decision. He's going to build some bigger barns, put his stuff there, so that way he has enough room to kind of hold everything. He made some investments that turned out really well, and now he's ready to sell and begin living the good life, begin living the comfortable life. But verse 19 is where the kind of the veil of his heart is pulled to the side. He turns inward, turns towards his soul, and he says, this is it, the promised land. We have no stress, no anxiety, plenty of wealth, plenty of stuff, nobody to have conflict with. And he tells his soul, we've got what we want. We did what we came to do. 
Now eat, drink, relax, be merry, enjoy it. This is the most dangerous lie of the idol of comfort, or any idol for that matter, is they have a tendency to overpromise and underdeliver. Because in the very next verse, verse 20, it says that his soul that he was seeking comfort for, and he was seeking comfort through this prosperity of wealth and material, the thing that he was seeking satisfaction for was required of him. And the place that he sought his comfort, it was left to be plundered, to rot, to waste, to ruin, and fade away. And that's, that's the issue with the idol of comfort. It's so temporary. It's so momentary. We're comfortable for a day only to be having the risk of being uncomfortable the next day. We chase things in the name of comfort with the reality that discomfort is right on our heels. And it's a race that we lose all the time. And it can wear us out. It can cause weariness. If there's anything that 2020 has revealed to us, it should be how frail and weak our comforts are. You have comfort in your financial situation? Millions of people around the world had their financial situation changed overnight. Is it in your possessions? How long before those rust and ruin? Or how long until the next thing's out? Is it in your family? Are we guaranteed X amount of time with our spouse and kids? Is it your health? I think by now we should realize that our health or our relative healthiness can be taken from us in a moment. One microscopic bug has shaken the world of its comfort of relative healthiness. Because comfort is so situational, because we end up being comfortable only to be uncomfortable again, we need something more reliable. We need something more lasting. We need something that's eternal, something that's not situational or circumstantial. And when we read our text this morning, it can seem as if Jesus is sounding harsh with us, if he's sounding demanding to us. But when he asks us to give up relentlessly pursuing comfort, he does it with an intention to replace it with that something that's more reliable. Something that doesn't exhaust our soul, something that isn't situational, something that will bring satisfaction to your soul, something better. And so we have this text on the screen as well. What does Jesus offer in place of comfort that's better? This is going to be in Matthew 11 verses 28 through 30. And this is Jesus talking, and he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does Jesus offer instead of a life of comfort? 
rest of soul. Now, because our tendency to worship the idol of comfort, because of that, that, that kind of bend we have, it can be difficult to see soul satisfaction as something that's a reality of following Jesus. It can be difficult to see an abundant life promised by Jesus in our text this morning. But life abundance and the life abundance that Jesus promises and that Jesus offers, it doesn't come from a life consumed by wealth or health or prosperity or comfort, but it comes from the rest of Jesus given to us by Jesus. The rest of Jesus and the promise of an abundant life is a life consumed by Jesus himself. Jesus doesn't tell us to drop and renounce all things to prohibit our lives or restrict our lives. He makes this plea and he makes this charge to drop the idol of comfort so that we can have what our souls really need so we can experience true life in the gospel. So we can have real rest. The rest that comes from Christ, it isn't determined on how stress-free your life is at the moment. It's not based on our current situation of how comfortable or uncomfortable we are, but the rest of Christ transcends situation. It transcends moments. It goes beyond how comfortable we are, and it goes into something much deeper and something much more reliable, and that's the work that Jesus did on our behalf. He desires to give our souls true satisfaction, true joy, and that comes through the rest of that is provided through the cross that he carried for us. This yoke he gives us is truly light, especially compared to the weariness of the life of comfort and the life of fleeing from uncomfort that we often feel prone to live. And that's, that's the paradox of the gospel. Jesus offers a yoke to relieve a burden. Jesus comes off harsh to show how gentle and lowly he is. Jesus asks us to lose comfort, to gain rest, to lose, to receive, to die, to live, to hate, to truly love. We take on a yoke to find rest. We give up the prosperity of a comfortable life to find true prosperity in the rest of Jesus. So as we close, I want to kind of propose this question just as, as something uh, for us to think about. What good comes from the comforts of our life if we don't have rest of soul? What good is a huge saving account if you don't have rest for your soul? Or what good is a great relationship with your family, a great relationship with your kids, if you don't have rest for your soul? Or what, it, what good is it to have uh, your relative healthiness if in the process of achieving that you are restless the entire time? These comforts are good things, but they're not things that ease the burden of life. Many times they're things that add to the burden of life.
And so this morning, Jesus wants to offer to take that from you and give you a yoke of rest in replacement. So how can we have joy? How can we have meaning or fulfillment in a year that seems chaotic, that's full of controversy, that's full of discomfort? When so many of our comforts are challenged, it's through the gospel and the eternal rest provided by Jesus that we find our joy that's rooted in something beyond COVID, that we have our joy that's rooted in something besides racial tension, that we have joy in something besides the next president of our country. Our joy and our soul satisfaction is rooted in the work and the life and the death of Jesus. And if you feel the weight of a life that's consumed by the pursuit of comfort with a fear of the uncomfortable, I want to plead to you this morning, like our liturgy said, taste and see the goodness of God and the rest of Jesus. Believe the gospel. We heard it this morning. We hear it every week. It's the first line of our pastoral welcome. For those of us that are weary and need rest, we offer you a welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's the extent of what we can do besides offer you that welcome and point you to the man that can truly relieve the weariness of life and can ease the burden and can give you the rest that your soul needs. Dr. Alex said it last week. I think it's worth repeating. God is so good in that while we were still worshiping the idol of comfort, Christ died for us. And in his death, for you, he purchased rest of soul. And as we come to Christ through faith and repentance, when we feel the weight of this burden, when we come to Christ, that burden's relieved and the rest of Jesus is given. And this rest that Jesus offers is something that we have access to because he ultimately forfeited all comfort, left the comfort of heaven, took on the discomfort of humanity, was called a man of sorrows. And he took up ultimately the most uncomfortable thing that this world, in the most uncomfortable situation that this world has ever seen by a cross that was intended for you and it was intended for me and he took it up for himself and he had our sins put on him there and on the cross in the most uncomfortable setting, in the most uncomfortable instance, Jesus had you and your soul's rest in mind. And so as we come to the table this morning, we get to partake of this body that was broken for us and partake of, of the blood that was shed for us, that was given up for us. Not, not so that Jesus could take from us, but so that he could give to us. Not so that he could bind us, but so that he could free us. Let's pray. God, 
this access that we have to you, this access that we get through your son is so undeserving. So often we're chasing created things over the creator. So often we are seeking the advancement of our own kingdom rather than yours. So often we neglect to see you as good as you really are. And so God, this morning, I want to ask that the rest of Jesus is more appealing than any comfort this world has to offer. I want to ask that, our, that you relieve the burden of our souls and provide us the thing that you sought to provide for us in your death and in your life and in your resurrection. God, help us experience ultimate, true rest of soul and help us do that with a repentant heart as people who are so often led astray by the worship of idols. God, we want to thank you again for your love and your grace. We want to ask that you keep us reminded and dwelling in this rest of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.